you're listening to episode 145 of the SBP podcast. And guess who I am? I'm your host, Susie Botello. So the SBP podcast, Mobile Filmmaking, was a sponsor at this year's International Mobile Film Festival, which really what it meant for me, since I'm also the founder of that film festival and the director, that I had to focus on a few different things this year to make sure that we include at least some part of the film festival in this podcast. And with this episode, I bring you one very special guest. That guest was a guest to the International Mobile Film Festival. Uh, His name is Jed Brophy. You've listened to him here in the podcast. We go back in the 50s. (laughs) That sounds weird to say, right? Uh, But uh, Jed Brophy is the protagonist of a film, a feature-length film that was shot in New Zealand in 2018, And that film was Blue Moon. By now, most people that are involved or or fascinated, at least, with mobile filmmaking have watched that film. And we brought him to our film festival. It was really not hard to convince him at all. Um, Over the years, he's been an ambassador to our film festival, and he's also been a judge in our short film competitions, as he was this year. Uh, Some of the reasons why he couldn't be here before was, well, we started with the pandemic the first time he was going to be here in 2020. And then, of course, he's been very busy working on some films. Like, for example, uh, you may know his name because, or it may be familiar to you, because he was uh, one, he played Nori on The Hobbit. And he also played multiple roles on The Lord of the Rings. And he more recently has played different roles in The Rings of Power. So it was a fascinating experience for everyone. And Jed being Jed was an incredible uh, guest to have. Um, Obviously, he's a celebrity. But you know what? He is... um, a very inspiring celebrity and he really connected with all the filmmakers. Um, He was being an ambassador for mobile filmmaking, but he shared his stories as well. A lot of stories about working with Peter Jackson and then working on blue moon and his current project. So I'd like to bring that presentation that we recorded for this podcast, as well as we presented it, during the film festival and I'd like to do that for you now as a treat and I hope you enjoy it. Now this is a recording that I did there live in person <laughs> uh, while Jed was presenting and we used a microphone that he was speaking into. So um, just be wa- be aware I'm not a professional, you know, we didn't have a whole setup for this so the quality may not be so good but I actually think it works and I think it does what it's intended to do and one of those things that it's intending to do is to inspire you uh, with his presentation and I think it does a really good job at that 
Um, also, I just want to make note that film submissions and all of the competitions, also including the smartphone and screenplays, uh, smartphone photos, that is, um, they are opening again on June 19th, which is coming right up. And they each have different deadlines uh, later this year, starting in October. So you have a good amount of time to plan, plot, and put to action those great stories and ideas you have uh, so that you can be a part of next year's film festival. By the way, I'm still buzzing from this year's film festival. It was incredible. It was inspiring. It was entertaining. And it just was so nice. So if you're ready, here we go. Well, so, uh, so welcome back to the International Mobile Film Festival in San Diego, the home of the best fish tacos in the world. Oh, come on. <laughs> hey, everybody. I've been anticipating. I've been really excited about this for years. And uh, I want to welcome our very own VIP honorary ambassador and VIP judge for several years, Jed Brophy. Hello. So I wanted Jed to introduce himself to you, the work that he's done, and pre-answer the questions that are all around you. Uh, he's also one of the protagonists in a feature film that went viral back in 2019. And that was Blue Moon. Hey. Kia ora koutou. Jed Brophy, aho. Hello, everybody. My name is Jed Brophy. I am from Aotearoa, sometimes known as New Zealand, more commonly known as Middle Earth. <laughs> um, I grew up on a sheep farm uh, on a place called Tai Happy. It was a very, very small rural community. Only 40 kids at my school. No filmmakers. In fact, the only films that ever played on our cinema were westerns. The very first film I went and saw was The Magnificent Seven. I was a six-year-old. I snuck into the theater with my father. Uh, it was a sheep farm. There were 5,000 sheep in a country of 60 million sheep. Um, we had 500 cows and about 20 horses. So I grew up on horseback. Um, I rode to school. It was one of those kind of upbringings that people dream about and film about. The only time we ever stopped work on the farm was when there was a western on. If it was a good Jimmy Stewart, you know, one of those great uh, Jimmy Stewart films. Um, if he was on the uh, TV, we'd, we'd watch it. Um, my dad loved westerns. He watched them with his father. And um, the only TV that was on, uh, we only had one channel of TV in New Zealand in those days. The only thing I was allowed to watch was High Chaparral or Bonanza. So that's my kind of introduction to cinema and the big screen was all um, set in this country, funnily enough. Um, I'm actually in this country because I'm actually writing a Western at the moment to possibly shoot in New Zealand. So that's why I'm here. I've been in, in and around Arizona. I've just come from Phoenix today, but I've been in a, uh, up in the Cochise County around Tombstone. Um, 
I got into acting through being a, being a training as a phys ed teacher. I went to Otago University to train as a kinesiologist. Drama was an outside paper, and if you were a guy and you did it, you could get an A, because no one wanted to do it if they were guys. It was a lot of young women wanted to be actors and actresses, but not guys. So I thought, oh, well, I've never had an A. That'd be kind of cool on my resume. I'll go and do drama. Um, so I went to do um, this drama paper, and a woman called Miranda Harcourt, who is now Nicole Kidman's um, dialect coach, also the mother of Thomas and Mackenzie, who's a, an actress that's kind of making waves in Hollywood. She said, you should go to drama school, in her Kiwi accent. I was like, fame, yeah, <laughs> sounds great. Anyway, I went to drama school thinking I could teach drama and teach physical education. I did a play, people stood up and they clapped. And I was like, well, no one's gonna do that in the classroom. <laughs> I will keep doing this as long as they keep clapping and if it all falls apart, I can go back to teaching. So I did theater for about two or three years and then I was doing a theater show written by uh, Stephen Sinclair, one of the co-writers of Lord of the Rings. He had a friend who was gonna come and see the show who had a part in a film, a zombie film that he was making. And this friend came backstage and was like, oh, I've got, I've got a zombie film, you know, uh, do you wanna be in it? I was like, no, you weird dude, I don't wanna be in your film. And when he left, Stephen said, you know who that was? And I'm like, your weird friend? He said, oh, that's Peter Jackson. I was like, ah, oh, you should have told me that that was Peter Jackson because I'd seen his first film, Bad Taste, and I'd seen his second film, Meet the Feebles. A lot of people don't know this, but Meet the Feebles only happened because Brain Dead fell over the first time. Spanish producers stole the $1.5 million, no, to start their own film festival. No, it wasn't true. But they, anyway, so um, Peter had all of these actors sitting around in all of these props and costumes and, and sets uh, but he didn't have any money, so they made Meet the Feebles, which is a puppet film, in a, in a hotel. They made it on the smell of an oily rag, which is kind of the premise for this, really, in terms of they had no money, they had no props, but they had a friend at Weta called Richard Taylor, and he had a whole lot of puppets from a TV show, and they just decided to make something. And they rented a hotel room, and in two weeks they made a feature film. About a year later, Braindead came along and I managed to be a zombie in that and got to work with the wonderful genius that is Peter Jackson doing only practical effects. There was no CGI in those day, all, all those days. Like, um, I got hit in the head with a rake, had to do all that in reverse, getting hit with the rake and then doing it in reverse. Did my own stair fall because we didn't have any stunties. My stunt guy turned up and refused to shave his moustache, so I became my own stunt performer for the whole film. Um, Peter then went on to make Heavenly Creatures, and then, of course, he went on to make Lord of the Rings, and I managed to be around at the time, and Peter pulled in all of his old friends from the, from the days of making films for basically no money. I think I got paid $300 a week to be on Braindead, the zombie movie. Um, I got paid that an hour to be on Lord of the Rings, um, which was amazing, but all the same people that turned up to do it for nothing, basically, when Weta was only two people, turned up to make this amazing group of films that he made over the course of five years. My full-time job was one of the 20 full-time horse trainers, and then I played various other characters, like I played orcs, I played dwarfs, I played elves, I played Nazgul, um, I played lots and lots of characters because of my physical training as being a farmer and riding horses and um, working as a phys ed teacher, I was able to put that all into practice and being on that big stage. But it was no different to making a small film. It was still a bunch of people that loved Peter, that he trusted, like 
people say Peter Jackson's a genius. His genius is surrounding himself with people that are passionate about their own thing, that are passionate about making the best art, that are passionate about making the best props, passionate about making sure that those horses are looked after, that the people are catered for. The same caterers that turned up and made pizza for nothing turned up and made food for 400 people on one unit. There were five units continuously shooting. So they were feeding 2,000 people a day, those same people that had worked for nothing back in the day. So what we're doing now, making films on phones with a small community, it's no different to making big films on an enormous um, kind of scale if you still keep the same people around you. And what Peter's managed to do on, on that big stage is keep those same people that were loyal to him back in the day when he had no money and take them through and pull them through with him. And, you know, they've all invested their money back into the industry in New Zealand, and Peter started the 48-hour film festival, which happens every year. Um, so you have 48 hours to write a script, get your crew together. You're given a genre. You turn up and they give you a genre. You have no idea what you're doing. You have to have your script um, an idea in your head, and then you can change it for the genre. But you don't get to write anything before the 48-hour film festival starts. You have to write it, film it, edit it and deliver it before the 48 hours is over. So I, the very first film I made was during a hiatus in Lord of the Rings. They had a two-week break and we basically stole equipment. We borrowed a generator, we borrowed a camera, we borrowed a smoke machine, we borrowed um, some art department people, we borrowed a DOP. Myself and my friend wrote the film. We played all six characters. We started off with beards, we shaved the beards and we had moustaches, then we shaved the moustaches and had no moustaches. But we made the mistake of plugging our camera into the generator that ran the smoke machine. So there's a huge hum throughout our entire audio. <laughs> so although the film won awards, we haven't shown it to anyone because I can't listen to it because it's so kind of horrible. But um, that was kind of the kernel of me thinking filmmaking doesn't have to happen on this grand scale. You can make it on the smell of an oily rag. I then got to not just be in Lord of the Rings, but I got to come back and be in The Hobbit as um, one of the dwarves playing Nori. And my, f my brother in the film is a guy called Mark Hadlow. He has a very good friend called Steph Harris who'd been making films for no money for a long time. We got together and had this idea of making a film through the Film Commission. It's our funding body in New Zealand. And we had this film called Swan Song with them for two years. And they started to slow track it. They started to find problems with the script that they had loved a year before. They started to think that we weren't the actors that should be in it, even though we'd done all the workshops and we created the characters. They didn't think Steph, the writer and director, was maybe the right director to make the film, even though it had been his project for two years. And Mark Hadlow said, why don't you just write something we can shoot on a phone? 11 days later, I got a script in my email called Blue Moon from this guy called Steph Harris, who I'd never really, apart from doing this teaser trailer for, didn't know anything about him as a film writer. It was a great script. He'd been at, a, at a, um, an all-night service station and he'd seen a guy filling up a car and he's a policeman. He thought to himself, I wonder what kind of people turn up at service stations at three in the morning. Imagine if a guy turned up with $500,000 in his car and he goes into the toilets and dies. And then the guy who runs the service station finds the $500,000 and puts it in his time safe. And then what if the guy who really owns the money turns up to get that money back? Wouldn't that be a great idea for a film? And that's where the idea for the film came from. It came from him filling up his car one night. So that's the premise of Blue Moon, which is all shot on an iPhone 7 with an anamorphic, an, a Moondog Labs anamorphic lens with um, the Filmic Pro app on it. 
It's shot in 30 hours. We had the service station for six nights, five hours a night. So it would be closed from midnight till five in the morning. There was no one there. So we had that much time. We went down and shot four scenes from it three months before we shot. And Mark and I realized that we were going to have to do a lot of the director's work. He was great at directing the camera. He was not very good at directing actors. He couldn't really give us any advice as to what our backstory was, what our emotional arc was. So Mark and I took three months to create an entire backstory for our two characters. We also, every day that we were shooting, we would get up at midday, we would map out the scene on the floor, and we would work out how to get the DOP to capture us all shooting one way, because I don't know if you know service stations, they've got one whole big glass window. So we couldn't shoot in this direction. We could only shoot in this direction. Everything had to be kind of a two-shot. So I would say to the DOP, I'm going to be eating the ice block here. When I drop the ice block, you need to relocate so that I can walk into that shot. Because we only had 30 hours, every single take in that film was take one, apart from one scene, which is two takes. It's a scene which is shot with Mark and his um, daughter, which the real father and daughter, but they were acting. And I said, you need to reshoot that scene. It's not, because I want this to be a good film, you need to reshoot that scene. So that's the only scene in the film that is done twice. Everything else is take one. We simply didn't have time. But we were very lucky. Our uh, cinematographer had worked with Steph for a long time, Ryan O'Rourke. He was a DOP for the police, very good drone operator. So he was really good at using a camera. He got some very good advice from people who'd worked with Soderbergh in terms of what equipment they had used on Unsane, in terms of um, what kind of ratio they were shooting on, how to use the Filmic Pro app, how to use the Moondog lens, how to use the gimbal. Um, we had a guy called Ben Mitchell who'd retired from working for Tarantino. He'd retired in New Zealand, but he kept all his own sound gear. He had his booms, he had his recording equipment, he had very expensive mics that he'd used. So, um, Dan Hanna, who builds all the sets for Peter Jackson, had retired to that particular area, gave us the motorbike and the car for free. He's an armourer, so he gave us the weapons that we used for free. We had a crew of seven. We used locals because the only funding we got was to be in that area. We had to use local people. So we, all the extras were locals, including real police, on duty, who turned up while we were filming. <laughs> there was a guy who turned up at three in the morning thinking that he could still get a pie. He's in the movie. Because <laughs> he actually was talking to the policeman going, I just want a pie. <laughs> Drove up drunk in his car and the police were going, well, you can't drive. He goes, listen, mate, it's not about you. I just want a pie. <laughs> so he's in the movie. While the police were there helping us out, they had to go to a real call and we happened to have the drone in the air. So the scene where the car drives off, that's all real footage that we didn't have to recreate. So there's a lot of luck involved with what we did. Um, and Mark and I knew each other really well, so we were able to create this amazing backstory about these two characters. If you haven't seen the film, they were at school together 40 years ago. When I arrived to get my $500,000, I recognised him. He's meant to be somewhere else, he's meant to be in China, but he's actually hiding out on the service station doing dodgy deals. So um, it was a great idea, all shot in one location. Great thing about that being one location, we didn't have to relocate anywhere. All we had to do was... We found out after three takes where we could hear this humming, just make sure we turned off all the fridges because you could hear this hum from all the fridges. There were a couple of things happened. The ice block that I eat half of and throw back in the thing, someone then bought that ice block and then bought it back because half of it had been eaten. <laughs> um, there's a scene where I shoot a real shotgun. We had real 
um, blanks in, the, in a shotgun, and we didn't want to put anyone in danger, so we had a remote camera hidden amongst the chippy packets. Um, crisps, I think you call them here. That packet of crisps got sold, and someone bought that packet of crisps back because it had wadding from the shotgun shells embedded in it. So that was real-life thing for someone. Um, we didn't have any funding from our film commission, but they did fund us to put the sound on later. So we were very lucky that we had um, a guy called Tani Upton-Beeston, who's an award-winning sound guy, give us an entire score. A guy called Judd Resnick, who cuts all of the trailers for um, Hollywood, cuts all the Marvel trailers, never, had never had a job editing a film, and we gave him the job of editing a film. So instead of just editing our trailer for free, he then edited our entire project. So we were lucky to, um, he was living in New Zealand as well, so we managed to get him on board to do that. So there was a lot of planning, but there was also a lot of luck involved in us managing to make a film in 30 hours. Also, Mark and I, on The Hobbit, we'd done a lot of green screen, which isn't really acting. Like the dragon was a tennis ball on a stick, you know. Remember Peter Jackson going, there's the dragon, and there he is again. And we're going, it's a really fast dragon. He's going, no, he's really big. He's over there, and he's also all the way over here. And that's really hard. It's not really acting. You kind of feel like you're an autonomous, like you're just kind of doing the same stuff over and over and over again. What Monique was saying, we wanted to be actors again. We, um, when we showed this film for the Film Commission, we said we would never have got this as an audition. No one would ever have auditioned me for the part that I played. It was only because Steph Harris asked me to do it because he knew that I wasn't working at the time and I was like, well, I'm not working at the time, so yes, I'd like to do some acting. Um, we wanted to act again. We wanted to be in a situation like theatre actors where we were acting with another person, not with a green screen or something that isn't there. Or at the bequest of a huge multi-million dollar studio that makes decisions that aren't necessarily about the actor or the product. We had a group of people that were really passionate about making this story, making it as real as possible, and we're all on the same page. And I think I was really inspired listening to your questions and answers today. I want to now get out there and make another film on my phone. <laughs> I don't want to... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go back to the studio thing and make a film for a studio again because it just takes so much time and it takes so much of your energy just trying to keep the wrong people happy. We, we make films not just to entertain people, but to also to educate people, to make people feel. Those big films, I don't feel anything when I see them. Like, ah, oh, great stunt. <laughs> oh, the score was amazing. The actors were great, but they didn't have a lot to do. It was all the special effects. And I think coming off the end of The Hobbit, I was kind of as depressed as I've ever been as an actor, I was like, I didn't do any acting. I was just walking in my costume in the background of shot as a dwarf. And you see the dwarfs at the beginning, they're like this, by the end we're like... <laughs> it's not just because we haven't found our homeland, it's because we like featured extras in our own film. You know, it was kind of taken away from us. And, yeah, I, I, when I was working on that project, I said to Mark, oh, remember the days when we did the 48-hour film festival? Remember the days when we made our own films on 16mm film? We had no money. God, those were the days. And that's why we got into making a film on a phone again, was remembering what it was like to make something that impassioned you, make you feel like, yeah, this is really what I want to be in the industry for. I want to tell stories. I want to feel like I'm actually doing something that's actually creating a character, not just being given a character and being told just be in the background of your own shot. Um, Martin Freeman famously said on the set of The Hobbit, I'm a featured extra in The Hobbit. And I'm The Hobbit. He put a lot of F-bombs in there as well, if you don't know Martin. 
Um, he's the only person on live TV in New Zealand to ever drop the F-bomb 14 times. Um, while all the kids are watching, you know, their parents have gone, oh, it's the first interview for The Hobbit. And he goes, I'm the fucking Hobbit in The Fucking Hobbit. And you see all the sound guys going, oh, we can't, we, 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 we can't cut this. And I think he knew. Also, in every single photo, he's doing this because he doesn't want them to use the photos, not knowing that Peter Jackson used every single one of those. Um, so that, that was the story of Blue Moon. We, we got lucky, but we also did a lot of planning. Mark and I planned our backstories really well so that once I put my jacket on, which that jacket actually has its own agent. It's been in seven films. Um, it was made for me for a film. It's got little pockets for radio mics, and it's been in a lot of films because in New Zealand we don't have budgets. You end up coming with your own clothes. And I just rock up on my jacket, and they go, that's so much better than the one we made for you. Why don't you wear that? So my jacket actually has its own agent now. It's actually working as I speak <laughs> on, on another film for Marvel. Um, I'm hoping it's getting paid well. Um, but anyway, um, once I put the jacket on, I'd say to the crew, once the jacket goes on, I'm not me anymore. I'm Darren. And Darren's not a nice person. Darren's got a really bad moustache. Darren doesn't ever blink. Darren just doesn't like people, bro. You know what I'm saying? So once the jacket went on, they knew that they couldn't talk to me about anything technical, that they had to talk to Darren, and he didn't want to ask any technical problems. You just had to make sure that you had all of that stuff sorted because we had no time. But the no time really helped us. We didn't have time for someone to go, oh, can I just get another diffuser? Can I just get the blue light? We just had to go with what we had. And I think sometimes that the extra time and the extra crew can really hamper what we're trying to make. So um, we were lucky, I think, that we had a crew of seven. Um, we were lucky that the restaurant that, we, that would cater for us, all the food they had left over from catering for the night, that was the food for the crew for the day. We'd rock up as they were closing and eat anything they had left in the fridge, and that was what fed us for the day. Um, we got lucky that the service station didn't have too many people coming to get pies at three in the morning. Um, we were really lucky that, um, that the police people that were involved with us didn't also look in my car too carefully, because otherwise they would have found some substances they shouldn't have found. <laughs> and that was my first real freak out on the day working with real police. I'm going, oh my God, they've got real dogs here. <laughs> I could be in a lot of trouble, because <laughs> my character really needs help with this character. Um, there was one point at which one of the policemen off duty didn't know we were shooting a film and he comes in and he saw that I had a sawn-off shotgun and he comes in and he goes, oh, hi. Um, and he gets on his radio and says, there's a guy here with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know that I was an actor or that his boss was actually shooting the film and was calling on the radio for them to come and arrest me and then Steph goes in and goes, oh, no, no, we're shooting a film. He's allowed to have the gun. But I thought that was another moment where I might get dragged off in the middle of shooting. So always make sure you lock down your location and tell your friends who are also police people that you're actually making a movie. So when they drive by and see a dodgy person standing in a forecourt with a gun, they don't come in, you know, because it could have gone really, 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 really badly. So yeah, so that was my journey into Blue Moon from my childhood. My dad has only ever been on a film set once. He's a farmer. He still doesn't really get it. He's still waiting for me to wake, make a western. I brought him on the set of The Hobbit. We hadn't shot anything for three hours. And he said to me, are you going to shoot anything? I've got animals to feed. And I said, well, there's Peter Jackson. He goes, oi, are you going to make anything? <laughs> I've got bloody animals to feed. 
Peter's wife, Fran Walsh, was standing there, and she said, she came over, and she said, oh, you must be Jed's dad. We've had the police at our house. Oh, bloody criminal, is he? No, he's got all these machine guns because he's got all these tanks and planes, and so every six weeks he gets audited. And then he goes, oh, I've got a great review for you, actually. Um, you should put this on your poster. Every time I want to sleep, I put on that Lord of the Thing, and boom. <laughs> yeah, so... Thanks, Dad. Thanks for that. <laughs> he likes all the horse stuff in it. He thinks that stuff's great, but all the rest of it. He said, why is there so much talking? The people with the pointy ears do so much talking. And the guy with the beard, so much talking. It's like, yeah, Dad. It's a Western. It's all, you know. Yeah. But he's very proud of Blue Moon. He has watched that because it's short. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah. So, um... That's about all I have to say. Just, I'm really honoured to be here because I've heard about this wonderful festival that Susie's made. Susie actually gave us a lot of help getting Blue Man out there. Our film commission didn't know what to do with the film that had been shot on the phone. No one had ever done one in New Zealand, so there wasn't any way to kind of work out how to market it. They came to our screening. They said, it's a brilliant film. You've made the perfect film. What do you want to do with it? We went, well, we want to sell it. And they went, oh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) And that's literally how it happened. So... Between Susie and a guy called Rich Vizor, who used to work for the British Film Council and knew all of the people who ran festivals around the world, we didn't really have a platform for selling it. And that's the other reason why this is such an important thing. Festivals are a way of getting out there, getting on that festival circuit. If you can get to a festival and other people hear about it, you can get on a circuit that can get you out there because making a film actually isn't the hard part. Getting people to see it is the hard part. Um, it's a lot easier now, there are screening platforms out there, but we really struggled in New Zealand to try and find a way of selling it, of getting it out to the public. As soon as we said it was made on a phone, people were just like, oh, well, could you just watch it before you say that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've, I've tried to get people interested in sponsoring a mobile film festival in New Zealand. I go and talk to schools, I judge a lot of um, college things, and I say, this is your, you carry around this all day, your teachers try and take it off you. You don't realise that this is your best friend. You can pull it out. You can shoot storyboards on it. You can go to locations and go, oh, I can shoot 4,000 photos of this location. I can go away and work out how to build that set. It's a great tool, not just for making the film, but for all the pre-production as well. That teaser trailer that we shot, we just we used that teaser trailer not just to work out how to shoot in the service station, but to work out how to use the phone intimately without the actors freaking out. And that's the other thing. You talked about it being an intimate thing. Filmmaking on a phone is intimate. This is really not confronting. Having a guy behind a camera this big with five people running it, that's not intimate, you know? Yeah, you can be right here and you're like, oh, that's really, I like that, you know? But when it's a big camera, that's not intimate. This is, this is really your friend when you're talking about trying to get up close and personal with people. This is an amazing tool. It's so non-invasive. Mark and I even forgot it was there a couple of times. I walked through the camera, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot you were there. Um, it was great. You know, he could be on the floor, the camera could be on the floor with a gimbal up there, and he could just be moving it like this between the two shot. It was an amazing thing. It allows so much. As long as you write something that doesn't have to be on this massive location outdoors um, or in the dark. We found that it pixelated in the dark a little bit. That the, um, the monitor didn't capture it. But apart from that, it was just, it was our best friend. So if anybody wants to make a Western on a phone, I have a script. <laughs> <laughs>
Call me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. This is uh, Chris Canolis. Wow. Am I allowed to shake your hand? Dude Vader. Dude Vader. Dude Vader. He's been uh, celebrating filmmakers for the International Mobile Film Festival, you know, since 2017. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Did you make all this yourself? Yes, it changes every week. Wow. So, and then the crust is just for the Mobile Film Festival. Cool. All right, so let's do a Q&A with uh, all the stars that happen to be sitting down right now. Uh, the filmmakers, we'll give them first dibs for making uh, their questions known to Mr. Jed Brophy, please. All right. Getting to ride the motorbike. <laughs> that was really cool. Yeah. I, I think just getting, I think Overall, working with Mark, Mark and I had done lots and lots of theatre, but we hadn't done a film together, you know, like a proper film, just like a two-hander like that. So I think getting to work with another actor that you really, really trust, that's, that's, a, that's a gift. Um, yeah, and we, we, we don't get to do that kind of depth of emotion in terms of playing opposite another person a lot. So, yeah, I think working with Mark was my favourite part. Yeah, I, if it was up to me, we sh I think we would have just said it was a film. But part of what Steph wanted to do was to showcase the fact that we'd shot it very quickly and on a phone as a selling point. I'm, I don't necessarily think that that did us any favours. It won awards for Best Feature Film, and it didn't say anything about shot on a phone in some places, so that was a good thing. I, I think just to be transparent, I think he just wanted to be transparent, but also... No one in New Zealand had done it, so it was kind of a unique thing. We were hoping that the, um, the press and the marketing people in our own film commission would jump on that and go, well, this is a great kind of marketing tool, but they didn't, unfortunately, think that it was. Yeah. And they maybe also um, offered less money because they said, well, while you fund that film, they deserve money. Yeah, the, the film commission has a charter that if they fund it, they'll sell it, but if they don't fund it, they won't do anything to help you. I mean, it's just a phone. We were just asking for information, just a phone call, just the list of people we should get in touch with. But even that, they wouldn't part with it. When we got into the online um, Cannes Festival, they said, no, you're not. I went, no, we are. And they said, no, no, we would know about that. So I sent them the email from Cannes saying that we were part of that official selection. And they're like, oh, how did that happen? Like, yeah. We wrote them an email. Go figure. It took me five minutes. Yeah. Um, every time we got into another festival, I would send them an email saying, oh, guess what? That festival you said was impossible to get into. Guess what? We're in selection. Guess what? We won. Didn't get a reply. <laughs> it's hard to do a private email. It is, yeah. yeah. No, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually, I actually was a second unit director on Lord of the Rings. My son played Eldarion's future son, Aragorn and Arwen's future son, and I got to do his close-up. <laughs> I got to be a director for that scene. I actually wasted, I think, a thousand feet of film. I forgot to yell, because you're supposed to say cut. 
I go back to number ones, and they go, okay, rolling reset. We'll go back to number ones. It was all super 35 film stock, too, so it was really expensive. <laughs> yeah, we did, I think, 14 or 15 takes as a rolling reset. I just thought I knew what I was doing. They were like, see the DAP just going, does he know we're still? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, learn your job. That's the other thing. I've also been a first AD. I first AD'd a couple of ads because I wanted to know what it was like. I would never do that job again. That is the hardest job, being a first AD. You're answerable to everyone. No, you've got no glamour. There's no glory. You have to make sure you get the schedule. You've got to make sure all the people turn up. If they don't, you have to find the people that aren't there. Like 14 extras who I'd employed didn't turn up, and I was on the phone trying to find other extras to turn up for that. Um, I've also been a full-time horse trainer on Lord of the Rings, so... Um, that was my job for three years, was training all 94 horses. Not on my own, there were 20 of us. Um, we trained all the 94 horses for the actors to ride and also the four stallions that we used, the white stallions. Um, and, and then the, own, the horses that we rode were for all the close-up fighting. So that's the, other cool, that's the coolest job I've done, actually, was doing that. Getting to gallop with 300 horses. You were in a film then. Yeah. Yeah. That, that day was, we had 300 extras all with their own horses. And that day when Peter yelled action, there was no acting. They were all so inspired by where we were on this location. There was a, a two-mile long road that they built for the tracking vehicle. It was a two-mile run just to nowhere with 300 horses. And with the job of just galloping as fast as you could, I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And they were geared up and you could see the horses just going, yeah, man, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to kill us some orcs today, man. Yeah, we're going to get you. That was the hardest thing was getting the horses to relax. You kind of had to turn this part off and just be like, oh, chill down here. Well, actually, I'd be all chill down there. It was a bit like jazz dancing. I don't know. Um, yeah, and the other thing is those of us that were actually full-time riders, we could stop our horses, but those extras had never been in a stampede before. And I just remember pulling my horse up and just hearing, oh, my God, I can't stop. Oh, my God, I can't stop. And there's a cameraman down the end. There's four cameramen down the end just going, oh, my God. <laughs> but, but the worst job was the guy in the barrel doing the sound because we tried to get sound by putting the microphones on our boots, mm. but all you could hear was the, jink, the chinkling of the leather and the stirrups. All you got was going, <laughs> which doesn't sound like horses galloping. So they put a guy in a barrel in the middle of the paddock with two mics like this. And we galloped towards him, and then we veered around him. And he said he literally, <laughs> yeah, he, it was all good until we were, like, this far away. <laughs> it wasn't good anymore. He's a friend of mine. He actually did the ADR on Blue Moon for us. So he went on to do ADR on Lord of the Rings. But that so was his job. So he forgave you. Yeah, Chris yeah. Ward, yeah, he forgave me. <laughs> it was a terrifying job. But also a cool job. We, being one of the black riders, we couldn't see. The hoods came out to here. We had gauze covering our faces, and I could see you, but at full gallop, that's not a lot, lot of time. The scene will be going through the pine trees. They didn't prune the branches. So the very first take, what you're hearing is... Oh! <laughs> Still in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of things like that in that movie. Neil? Yeah, we'd known each other for 30 years. Um, I first worked with Mark when I was light, operating lights in a theatre show, and he was in the show, and 
we kind of, we'd seen each other in theatre productions, we'd been in theatre productions, but this is the first time we'd worked together on film, but we'd had three years on The Hobbit to kind of get under each other's skin. He was the guy, he was the brother who was the fussy one, he was Dory and I played Nori, so we just kind of had this love-hate relationship. And we kind of took that through to being in Blue Moon as well. We created a backstory that we'd been at school together 40 years ago. And something had happened where we'd beaten someone up or we'd badly beaten someone up and I'd taken the blame for it. He'd gone on to have a great career, uh, a great schooling, and I'd gone on to have a kind of a, I went into a life of crime. Um, but that three months of leading up to shooting, we actually rang each other every day and talked about character development in terms of where we wanted to take it and. Did a lot of stuff in the film where I said, I'm going to do stuff. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to do it. Like I slap him at one point. I didn't tell him I was going to do it. But I told him I was going to do stuff. just didn't tell him what. <laughs> but you have to have that kind of trust with someone. Like he's the most underrated actor in my country. Yeah. He can do the range. But he kind of looks like Mark does. He doesn't get those leading man parts, but he could do them. He can do action. He can do anything. He can do comedy. But he doesn't get put up for those parts. So for me, I wanted to do the film as much for him as I wanted to do it for me, you know. Um, he's and I wish he was here, Jed. Yeah, me too. You two together, like in the in the podcast when we did that together, I I still listen to it when I want to cheer up. Yeah, he's a funny, funny man, but he's also, like a lot of us, he's tortured with like a lack of self belief. And a lot of my job in Blue Moon was just going, dude, you've got this. You 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 you're in there. Just play the character. Um, yeah. No, I'm not putting him down for that. He just would go, oh, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. I think we all do that yeah. as actors. Yep. You know. I do my best work in the rear vision mirror going home. Oh, funny, I'd been cool like that. <laughs> but I'm not, you know. And I think I'm a terrible auditioner. I do bad auditions. I just know I do. I do great auditions at home and then I go to the audition. I'm terrible. <laughs> I still get parts, so I can't be too terrible. But I, I just don't, I don't like that process of putting myself down on tape. I just, it's just the worst. I don't know what it is. Someone, someone might be able to help me. I have a question. Earlier you mentioned um, that someone wasn't really great at directing actors. So I'm just wondering, as an actor, what do you look for when a director is trying to uh, get that vision? Most important thing is where am I emotionally in the arc of the story? You know, like you don't want to peak too early, but you want to know what's at stake. Where have I come from and where am I going? Um, that backstory part in terms of a director being able to give you your backstory what you might have suffered, the pain you might, the thing that they want you to bring and give to the audience is the most important thing. I've turned up and a director's gone, oh, you know what you're doing? <laughs> no, I don't. I've read the script. I don't know what I'm doing. I, if, if the most important thing for me and a director is having a meeting way before I get on set for them to tell me the story of the character that I'm playing so that I know what's at stake for me, what my beliefs are, what I'm carrying with me, what are my own prejudices as a character, so that when I'm acting with another person, how am I affected by what they're giving me? Um, we as actors, we're great at ciphering. We're great at doing what a director wants us to do, only if we're given the information in between the lines. The lines give you so much. They give you the story, the narrative of where that wants it to go. But the emotion, that comes from the person whose story is at stake. Usually the auteur, the director, writer-director. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the most important thing for me. Peter was great at directing action. He was great at directing the camera. But I remember Tim Baum on Brandy going, so where am I emotionally? He goes, on set? <laughs> and I'm not putting him down, and I hope Peter doesn't get offended by this. Oh, no, I talked to he him just, tomorrow. He just didn't understand the question. Yeah. 
but he got to understand working with actors. Kate Winslet would, like a heavenly creature, she would just grill him for where she was emotionally, and he had to come up with answers because she wouldn't let him off the hook. She needed to know. She was 17. This was her first big feature film. She wanted to know where she was in the space of that scene. So that's the most important thing for a director to be able to give me is like, well, so where am I emotionally in the scene? Am I at my most angry? Am I most tortured? Because I don't want to peek there and then have nowhere to go in the movie, you know. I would love to shoot it here. We're trying to cast uh, an Apache lead woman in a film shooting in Arizona. Getting funding for that is becoming very difficult in terms of an idea. I've, you know, like I've, I've, I've had money to write it, but in terms of getting that produced, oh man, it's, it's such a hard, because to get permission to even shoot the part of the story I want to, I have to be very careful about how I shoot it because it's cultural appropriation. I don't want to be that person. The whole reason I'm writing that film is because I was working on a film set in 1864 in my own country during the Māori Land Wars. I was coming up with incidental characters around an, uh, a real historical premise. All the leads were European, but all the real people were Māori. They weren't the leads in this film, and so I had to say, I can't be on this project unless you get a Māori writer to write it, because all of your heroes are not the heroes of the day. There are statues to the colonisers, but there's no statues to the people that were colonised. So we took that film and gave it to the right people and made that happen. And I'm in that situation now where I'm working with a, an Apache woman. Um, she's, she's kind of given me permission to tell this part of the story. But trying to get funding for that is going to be really difficult in this country. So my idea is to get the locations right, cast an authentic person, cast an Apache woman, because I don't want to try and not do that, that would be wrong. And then go and shoot it in, in New Zealand where we can stay away from the politics. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, yeah. yeah. I really hope it happens because I would really love to see this kick-ass Apache woman. Her journey is so, so brave in terms of what she went through to try and get her children back. I don't know if you know the orphan trains that happened in the 1870s where Catholic priests would pinch children off the street and mm -hmm. put them on trains, and that's kind of the basis of the story. So, yeah, but it's not an easy story to tell, and it's not an easy watch. That makes it difficult to sell as well. It's not a comedy. <laughs> ha, 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 going to get my children back. It's the kind of work, you know. Um, so, yeah, but I, 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 it's one of, the, one of the great things about being from New Zealand, and you will know this, is Māori have sovereignty. They have a voice in Parliament. They have their own king. We have the King of England, but the Māori king is much stauncher than that. The only reason the Tiriti o Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, was even signed is because the Māori were kicking ass. The British were losing. They signed the treaty to try and get out of hospital, basically. Um, so we're really lucky that that conversation happens, but it's not happening on the Apache Reservation. They're not getting funding to make that film. They, they don't want us to, to tell that part of the story because they've been trying for 150 years to make that story. So they've given us permission to use this segment, and that's great, but that's all I want to use of it. And so, yeah, it's really tricky. I didn't realise how tricky it would be until I talked to people. You said Apache? Yeah. I have a connection for you. Excellent. Yeah, I mean... I'm very lucky that Taika Waititi made a great series called Reservation Dogs. So he has, and being a Kiwi and a friend of mine, he has 
an inroad into that as well. But realistically, trying to get government funding in Arizona to make that film isn't going to happen. They don't want to make it. What did some guy say to me? Yeah, but we won. Mm. That's not the point. Yeah. Love to make it on the phone, but man, shooting those vistas on a phone is really hard. You've got to have a really big anamorphic lens. <laughs> it's not to say it won't happen. I, I really hope it does. I think the phone is smaller than the lens that you need to do that. <laughs> That's true. Well, what? okay, yes. Last one because, yeah. Uh, mobile filmmaking, did you see, like, do you remember anybody that you changed their minds with? Did, did you remember, like, before, you know, now I'm not interested in it. Afterwards, I'm eating crow. Yeah, absolutely. I was lucky enough to work as a mocap actor on Avatar 2 and 3. And the American Avatar um, motion capture crew, um, actually John Landau's son and uh, another guy watched Blue Moon on the plane flying to New Zealand. And Giovanni Rabisi, who's an Avatar, saw it on the... He goes, hey, I saw it. You're that guy in the movie with the gun and the thing with the thing and you shot the guy. Wow, that's amazing. It's on the phone. Oh, my God. So, yeah, um, just him. Yeah, that was pretty much the whole conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he was. Uh, I didn't know this. He he'd never learned to bowl. He's from New York. I taught him to bowl. I'm like going, this is kind of bizarre. <laughs> Showing me how to do that. <laughs> every time he saw me on set, he'd go. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a you know. I mean, I've told the story outside, but James is going to kill me. But he comes on the first day. James Cameron came on set. It was like meeting the Queen. And he said, you know, these films are going to save the planet. And a Māori friend of mine who's the grip, he goes, well, bro, with all your money, just save the bloody planet. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not really an original story. It's amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong, the guy is a genius. It's amazing. But I did my time on it, and I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was a minute a day of the worst walking through treacle I've ever been in. It just... Yeah, talk about someone trying to stop the process of making film. He's, a, he's, an, he's amazing, and those films make billions of dollars, don't get me wrong. He's been great for the industry, but I don't want to work on films like that. That's not what I I think they've become templates. It's what's happened. We've already seen the story told in so many different ways, yeah. and they, they only fund them because they've worked before. Yeah. And so, and this is the, the power of mobile filmmaking is that you can get some very good stories. Jed, I am all behind you no matter what you use because I know you and I know that I know that you're where you're coming from, regardless of what camera you have. You don't have to make it on a phone for me is what I'm trying to say. So Yeah, I, I, I'd like to make a lot, all of the action on the horse. I think you could do with a mobile phone really, like on a phone really well. You know, I've got a, a guy who's um, a friend of Roy Tolkien's who does climbing films on phones, and he's even created a rig to do, you know, people getting shot off horseback. So it's right there on the horse. And so from that kind of stuff, it's really good because a, a steady cam and all that stuff from the horseback perspective hasn't been done before. It's been done with a, you know, a crane arm, but actually having it w on the rider, I'd like to see that done. You imagine riding at full gallop with a camera right there and then getting shot off the back of the horse. You can't use wires and stuff or mats. It's got to be for real, right? Right. I want to do that. 
Well, for real, real. Yeah, for like, real, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> we we learned to fall off horse off horses on Lord of the Rings. It's as long as you throw your legs up and you land flat, it's only marginally painful. And once you get out of hospital, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. That's the last scene of the day, right? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we did it on the beach to, to begin with. And then they built these long pits like this red carpet, which they would they would dig it up the dirt. They put sand down and then sawdust and then sand and then sawdust and a layer of dirt on the top and you just Wow. They got the carpet from my house. <laughs> Make a little sand angel and just skip it around. Just a side note. We made a stunty fly through the air twenty eight feet before he hit the ground with a horse. Yeah, hit him with the shoulder at 25 k's, and he just went boom. Guy called Sala Baker. He now works doing stunts in Hollywood. Yeah. Right, Sorry, guys. did you have a question? Yeah, I actually, you know, I, I have to tell you, when I was in college studying cinematography, that movie was coming out, and it was supposed to be a real thing. There were wanted posters on the, on the, on, uh, all over the place, and they had this campaign right after the movie came out, and I made sure that I watched it. I think there was like a midnight showing here in San Diego, and I was the only one in the theater... Wow. When I went to watch this movie, and uh, just about three months before, I was in a camping trip, and I got lost in the woods, and I spent six hours running back to the same spot going, I think I've seen this rock before, <laughs> and I'm glad I watched Blair Witch after. But we studied Bla uh, the Blair Witch, sorry, <laughs> Uh, we studied the Blair Witch as one of the, the most innovative, life-game-changing life, uh, uh, marketing ploys for filmmaking. And we, uh, this guy, Jason C. Marshall, that's been in my, cost, in my podcast several times, and I, we did a, we did a little thing uh, where we put together that idea. Could it be done today with smartphones? Yeah. And yes, and everything would work, you know, because GPS would get weird and the smartphones would run out of batteries, but we had battery packs and we went through that very well. So it's one of my favorite films, but I don't think anyone can remake it no matter what they use unless it's Jed Brophy. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. We had that problem on Blue Moon where we were, the phone was heating up and it was filling up with data. So we had a wireless thing that took it straight off the phone onto an external hard drive. Yeah, mm -hmm. you probably know all about that. It yep. really saved us. We were, uh, that data person who was saving the data, they were the most important person because if, it, if we lost it, we couldn't get it again. So, yeah. 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 So, guys, I just want you to send off Jed Brophy with a biggest cheer. I want standing ovation. <laughs> Woo! Jed Brophy. Thank you. Not only for being here today, but by being an, an ambassador for a film festival for many years now and for supporting all of you, donating his time as a judge, 
and being an ambassador who is truly pushing this around the world. So thank you, Jed. Thank you. I just want to say to all of the filmmakers that I listened to your questions and answer today. You inspired me, actually, more than I think I inspired you, so thank you. That was really quite moving for me to hear all of that stuff. Just, yeah, this is why we do it, right? We do it because we like making stories and we do it because it's important to make stories, but as actors, we do it because we need to. So, yeah, big ups to all of you. Thank you. Kakite. Hey, I'm really glad I was able to bring that to you guys. I'll see you soon. And as we always say, traditionally, at the end of each episode, goodbye, listeners. Thank you.